Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Few people have found the magic formula in publishing twice. Janice Min is one of those people. As the new editor-in-chief of Jan Wenner's Us Weekly in 2003, she put her Columbia Journalism School-trained brain to work on celebrity culture and ended up transforming the culture itself. She satisfied the thirst we never knew we had for Lindsay Lohan, for the real truth about the real housewives. She tripled circulation and generated billions in ad revenue. Then she left to transform another magazine, The Hollywood Reporter. It was a drab daily when Min took over in 2010. It sucked up to the studios, and basically nobody read it. Now it breaks news in every issue, a must-read for industry players. So when I was recently in L.A. shooting Will and Grace, I wanted to get Janice Min's take on the business side of TV trends. All these shows that are rebooting now, like Murphy Brown, I mean, now we'll see the endless What waves. do you think of that? I think, like, everything in Hollywood, they will exhaust it to the point where everyone rolls their eyes. But then, you know, 10% of them will work out great, and Will and Grace is the prime example of that. It's like they never left, and it worked, and people are happy with it. If these things are cynically done, thinking the audience still comes, but they don't put in the effort to make it good, then the audience isn't there. And I guess it's as simple as that, right? Then I watch a lot of other shows, but like Stranger Things and Black Mirror. Right. I don't get it. And I wonder if that's what's leading people back to the Will and Grayson, which is like, give me a network half hour. Like, it's familiar. It's comfortable. I think, you know, I mean, there are probably 100 shows I've watched one episode of at this point. I think that's probably incredibly frustrating if you're a show creator because there's no runway for someone to fall in love with episode three where things get really good. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was this hilariously sad statistic about how long people listen to a song on – like Pandora or Spotify or whatever before they hit fast forward and it's three seconds. Mm. And it's like swiping right and left on yes, Tinder. It's what everyone's fighting against in everything, right? Everything content. That's why Katzenberg wants to do five minute content from Verizon. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right? I want I want I want something while you're online at Starbucks, I got a show for you. Yes. It's five minutes long. Right. 
Right, right. And there's a coffee waiting for you at the end of that show. Correct. In the arc of your career, uh, the last several years, do you find you have less time to consume any entertainment product? Oh my god, I think I think. Does Janice Min have like groovy screenings of movies at her house or her celebrity friends or what happens? No, (laughs) no, that is that is very much not the case. I think there was always this running joke at the Hollywood Reporter that one day someone should do the Janice Min Film Festival, showing all these movies that I've never watched while I was while I was editing. I can't sit here and embarrass myself. On your a show. lot of it's and, gotten by you. Yes, um, but some of the greatest movies of our generation have somehow not made them in front of me. So I will often be watching, you know, The Godfather on American Airlines, and you know, yeah. okay, like <laughs> this looks really good. Yes, I, I hear that's good. <laughs> um, this is one of the things I think is interesting about editing. I'm not adept at that many things, but I think I am adept at this, which is being able to hear what other people are saying about things, to divine from that what the story is without ever actually having to see the movie, see the television show, but sort of understanding the trends or cultural meaning or business story or whatever behind the product. You became the executive editor of Us Weekly in 2002. Yes. I remember when I was making films, mostly in the 90s, the studio, they want a good push and they want a lot of PR. And there's a lot of insistence on you doing a lot of media to to sell the movie. Right. And you do magazines and you're terrified. Right. The writer might get you. Right. And they might not get you. And um, Us was very kind of soft and very people-asking. The poor man's whatever. Right. Yes. And then when you took over, it got really kind of, you kind of juiced it up a bit. It became much more tough, if you will. What language would you use? When you took over Us, the mission was to do what? When I started Us Weekly, I think I was, uh, let's say, 31 years old. And um, so I was an executive editor to this famous and some would say infamous editor named Bonnie Fuller. So she'd been this figure in publishing in New York in the 90s where she'd gone from glamour to Cosmo and was always wanted another job and was always, you know, one of these New York Post staples where people were always leaking negative things about her. But she was considered a little bit of a, of a publishing savant. And so she took over at Us Weekly, hired me as her executive editor, and she had a very sort of aggressive story sense about her and believed in this whole crazy thing of, like, you stay till 4 a.m. and you leave and, the, you, know, the, you know, the sun's coming out. And, like, literally bread trucks were delivering bread at the places on the block. And um, but she, had, she and Jan, you know, and you know Jan, Jan does not abide by people with a large sense of ego. And they had these unbelievable clashes. And he grew to really not like her and she grew to really not like him. And they would have these spectacular fights over stupid things but well, all for example fun. what was their editorial debate you know Jan has a ton of celebrity friends right, right. And, and, and thought she was mean yes and thought she was mean right. and I don't know if I would characterize this as true but he believed she was jealous of celebrities you know wanted to be one of them and and that manifested itself in in like a harsher tone than he would have chosen um on top of that, kind of a unwillingness to defer to his wishes. And, you know, if you work for Jan, and I worked for him for seven years, and it was very peaceful, if you don't listen to Jan, he will let you know he is unhappy with you. And so they would have these, these things sound so trivial now, but he had wanted some design change on the table of contents, and Bonnie refused to do it. And it's something that you know, nobody in the world would have ever noticed one way or another. And she refused to do it. And he's screaming at her and in his office. And he has this beautiful wood paneled office with, you know, photos of his family. And um, and shortly thereafter, she was beginning a contract renegotiation with him. This was like 14 months into the job. She had only signed a one-year deal. And it ends up getting so heated that they have a cooling off period where they don't speak. So I go off on a vacation to Italy 
And you're a genius. <laughs> yes. And and then, you know, all of a sudden, like Bonnie's desperately trying to reach me. And like she just is one of these people you can't get off the phone. And so I just wasn't responding to her. It was like my first real vacation since I'd worked for her. And then suddenly I find out she just quit. And Jan tracks me down in Italy. And because Jan is Jan, he finds me in this tiny restaurant outside of Florence. And the waiter comes over. He's like, I have a Mr. Winner for you on the phone. And Jan offers me the job. And like, I'm just like a nobody. And it's, it's the whole thing sort of freaked me out. I, could I do this? Why would I want to do this? Like, I don't want to be public. I don't want to be criticized. And I saw how mercilessly Bonnie was treated in the press, and I didn't know if I was comfortable with that. And then, and What do you think you want to do? What did he see in you? What, well, a solution, an easy right. solution right You weren't there. Bonnie. I wasn't Bonnie. But also, he and I got along well. Right. I think, He could communicate with yes, you. Yes. And also, I was the one who kept the place functional while, while, amid Bonnie's chaos. And I think you, you've probably seen this a lot of places where, you know, where there is a very sort of— um, challenging number one. And there was, there was a number two who, you know, a lot of the creative stuff and the ability to actually get people to do things was done through me. And what that were, was What were Jan's strengths in your mind? I, like, I really liked Jan. Like, Jan, so Jan is like, Jan is permanently 18 years old or maybe even 16. He has so much enthusiasm for everything. And he's like brash and rash and impulsive. And I think for some people that can be very unsettling. But there's sort of probably no better feeling than if you suggest something to Jan. He's like, that's great. And he, like, bangs the table. And he's like, oh, my God, that's genius. Let's do it. Let's do it. But then, like, just as easily, like, you could say, you know, Jan, I had a second thought about that. Maybe we should do that. And he'd be like, okay. And, like, walk out the door. And, like, right. he, you know, I think there's certain things. I think Us Weekly, he realized, wasn't necessarily his wheelhouse. It's not his baby. Like, Rolling Stone is his baby right. that he raised. And Us Weekly was going to be the ATM. It's going to be the cash machine for him. And, he, and you know, there was also part of this for Jan where I think he, you know, this is a man who, who's Rolling Stone defined a generation. And, um, and Us Weekly was another generation that he was not as fluent in. And he realized that. But he had these moments of unbelievable inspiration. He became really obsessed with The Bachelor when it, when it came on ABC. And so, you know. Oh, Jan. I know. Oh, Jan. And so I never watched one single episode of The Bachelor in my entire life, which is hilarious given how many times it would then appear on the right. cover of Us right. Weekly. But Jan had this, there was this one, <laughs> there's this one bachelor named Andrew Firestone, who was, I think, the second bachelor to come along. And Jan, like, he just this crazy whim. He's like, I believe in it. Let's put him on the cover. And so, you know, I'm like, all right, Jan, you know, it's your magazine. And we put Andrew Firestone on. And I, he was he was engaged to the winner. And I, I can't believe I remember all their names. Jen Sheft. And it became the highest selling issue of Us Weekly in its history oh at that God. time. And so, you know, one of the crazy things is pre-web metrics. And, you know, Us Weekly didn't even have a website at this time. And this wasn't even that long ago. It was 13 years ago. You would live and die by these newsstand sales. So you would put an issue out, let's say, Thursday night or Friday morning. And so you would get all the scan data. There are these companies that do nothing but scan UPCs. They count the UPCs for you from the biggest retailers. And one of them is Walmart. And, you know, uh, the other one is, you know, some aggregation of maybe like Hudson News newsstands and airports. And and then you can calculate a sales figure from that. Mm. And Jan, who's like, you know, Jan, who I don't, I think would tell you he loves money, and <laughs> you know, the things that come with money. He, um, he was like addicted to it, like the newsstand sales, and because wow. it was because it was a dollar. So let's every issue you sold over five hundred thousand copies, which is amazing to think anyone can sell anything you know more than five hundred thousand copies right. to give a publication. Every issue over that he sold, he made a dollar eighty five. And so you know, after like let's say after a year of me being there. Us Weekly had gone from losing money every issue where it would sell like around 275000 And Bonnie got it 
sometimes touching 500,000, then it started to sell like as much as 1.1 or 1.2 million a week on the newsstand. So you can imagine what that cash looked like. Real money. Real money. So there is a sort of, but, you know, I think probably you and your audience remember this kind of exuberance, I guess, an irrational exuberance at the time around celebrity that that is gone now. It's gone. I'm going to write down death of celebrity. Death of celebrity. You grew up in Atlanta. Yes. Your family moves to Colorado. Yes. Your father taught zoology. Yes. Your mother's an IRS agent. Yes. So you grew up in a pretty heady academic right. group of people, pretty smart people. You go to Columbia School yes. of Journalism. Yeah. So when you're there at this, I'm not going to say, uh, to be kind, Us Magazine, in my mind, when I was doing a lot of magazine covers, was it one of those things on uh, in a pile of other such magazines at yes. the hair salon? Right. I mean, it wasn't like a yes. real serious thing. What you, did okay, you decide so you wanted to do? The first thing was like, I just don't like the mean stuff necessarily. You show sunny wrapping around Us Weekly. So there were things like people smiling. You know, this captured the imagination of young urban women and women who made a lot of money. It was the iPod of publications. It was so cool, and all these other publications followed and couldn't quite be the same. I felt like it could be read on two levels. One, like, you're just a celebrity fan. You actually care about what Jessica Simpson wears. And the other part of it was a tongue-in-cheek look at celebrity. And you could sort of read it as a smart person and be entertained. So taking away the ickiness of being the person who goes to the grocery and buys the star or inquirer. You want to be the thinking man star. No, the cool person's, cool. like, celebrity publication. And, like, so when I when I worked at People Magazine, like I would have never read that. I was, you know, I started there when I was twenty three, and it was just so middle brow, middle America. You know, it, it wasn't quite still talking about. It wasn't cool. It was there was nothing cool about it. It was very like catching up with Lonnie Anderson, you know, and and um, Lonnie's heartache. Yes, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and you know, and so there's this whole other generation of celebrity who were coming up through music, through music videos, through reality television. You know, the first year that. I started Us Weekly. I think that was the first year American Idol came on air. And so it was this whole explosion of reality TV. So this intimacy that, you know, that's when people started to call celebrities on their first name basis, like Britney, Justin, Jessica, you know, and the whole thing was like some like giant cotton candy machine. What did you learn at Columbia School of Journalism that you employed when you started working at Us Weekly? I mean, there were... Something tells me there's things you learned at Columbia School of Journalism that you employed when you took over Hollywood Reporter. Sure. But, but, but what about Us Weekly? Well, at Us Weekly, you know, one of the things was employing journalistic practices on a ridiculous category. So being able to do that kind of celebrity news credibly was, I, I, was a big part of Us Weekly reaching... But did the staff, did you and the editorial staff, did you all sit there and go, oh, God, I can't believe, like, you're writing things about people, and you have a degree of contempt for the people you're writing about? Think about who were the big Us Weekly figures. Paris Hilton. There was a show on MTV called The Hills, Mm -hmm. um, which all young women were obsessed with. Dawson's Creek. Jennifer Lopez. She's like the platonic version of an Us Weekly star at that time. She loved it. She read it. She played along with it. She's out there getting photographed, reading Us Weekly. It was symbiotic. Totally symbiotic. And that's the thing that was laid bare when you work at a place like Us Weekly is the sort of push-pull of needing to be in the press and the desire to never be in the press. And Us Weekly was for the people who very much desired to be in the press. I mean, it's like the bonfire of the vanities, people who really made that deal with the press. They yes. thought, to myself, I'm, I'm going to just tear off a little piece of me and throw it on this yep. fire yep. and let you consume me because yes. really, I wouldn't get this attention otherwise. Yes. I mean, you certainly aren't going to love me because of my work. Right. Jan and I would have these funny conversations where he was trying to understand, like, who is an Us Weekly celebrity? And he would say, you know, 
I just want to see more Danny DeVito and Michael Douglas in Us Weekly because they're his friends. You have to arm wrestle with him about that? I mean, like there were times I'm like, I don't care. So put in like, well, we'd throw in the occasional picture of Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman or, and right. you know, and, and that, that makes Jan happy. And he his would, buddies. He would literally come down and be like, I love that photo. It's like, so do I. And that was it. But it was, it was just, it was just a generational shift of um, how a certain group of women, and Lindsay Lohan is the other prime example, right? Like, uh, who was that a big fixture of the Us Weekly era? It's, it's, it's almost forgotten now. I know. There was a period when she first started to kind of go off the rails where people were very dismayed. Because Lindsay was enormously talented. Hugely. She did the whole Patty Duke thing yep. and the parent trap. I thought she's this young, precocious, very talented girl. Yep. And then all of a sudden that just kind of goes away and she becomes this tabloid fodder. Did you see that? Did, 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 sometimes... Yeah, it was, I can't even tell you how strange the Lindsay Lohan stuff is. Like she, she directly called people on staff all the time. You know, she, um, her mother, and you know, I'm sure well, remember, her, like yeah. The, yeah, the original momager, Dina. I guess, Dina, that you know would call people on staff. Um, like, like Lindsay was, like she was uh, among, I'm assuming, other addictions was completely addicted to the attention, right? And I think yeah. if you're a celebrity, and if you're a young celebrity in particular who is raised as a child star, I mean, you know, like there are a lot of celebrities who are just sort of. Uh, bottomless pits of narcissism, right? Of need. And also not exercising the best judgment at the time. When when do you realize at Us Weekly that it's time to go? Yeah. I mean, so it's, you know, there was, <laughs> I think anyone who does these contract to contract jobs at some point, every time you sign one, like a little part of you dies. You're like, ugh, I'm here for another, you know, two years or three years, you know, being held hostage and counting down the days and marking X's on a yeah. calendar. And so, I never really cared about the celebrity stuff. I think anyone I worked with at the time would know I didn't care. I didn't care about – I would not would not personally sit around and talk about Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of, you know, total grind for seven years, like a grind where you make a lot of personal sacrifice. Like you are – you like twice a week you come home after midnight and sometimes you come home at 2 a.m. And um, like you always – like, you know, I started out – I started that job and we used, you know, trios if anyone remembers the Palm Trio and then it becomes an iPhone by the end and like you are just always working. Like I don't care how much money I'm going to get paid because I made a lot of money and I don't need to make more. I think to be able to let go of money, anxiety at different points in your life is incredibly liberating, right? That's what they tell me. Yeah. <laughs> And so then, you know, I went in. So this was after 2000, you know, 2008. There's a terrible financial crisis. Um, Jan, in 2007, you know, something I'm sure he wishes he could take back, where he bought the 50% of Us Weekly that was owned by Disney at the time. He bought it back for $300 million. He has, he had, then he gets an offer from Hearst to buy the company for $650, $700 million, and he doesn't take it. And then, you know, boom, 2008. And the whole world falls. And ad, ad yeah. rates go down. And the multiples at which you could trade a successful publication go nowhere, right? Like if it was whatever. It's the beginning was, of the end. It's the beginning of the end. And you, it's like you are in a hole and you can't get out. And um, and so so there was that part of it. Um, and I don't know. I just didn't feel like doing it anymore. You took a year off. I took a year off. Be here with your family. Yes. I, like It was great. And we decided. How many kids you have? Now I have three. I had two at the time. Decided <laughs> that we wanted to move to California, which was, um, you know, because why not, right? And and you were in New York. I'm in New York. We live on we lived on Lafayette Street, Lafayette and Prince in Soho in New York. I know. Oh, I know, and we. I love it. It's the greatest. We made we I, now. I wish we. Do had, you miss New York? I do miss New York. You know, my wife wants to move here. Really? Well, if you we have, have kids, three kids. I mean, to never have to put a mitten or lose a hat. And, you sound I mean, like just, my wife. Totally. I'm going to cry. Yeah. No, it's. She can't stand the winter. Yes. I mean, and sniffling, it's. Sniffling, cold. Yes. And I don't know if you read that. Indoor play spaces. 
Uh, totally. She's and, going nuts. No, we used to do like— We're having a fourth child. Oh, my God. She's yes. crazy. I mean, yeah. like, no, there were times in New York where the weather was so terrible, and we, like, and we would do things like, should we just go to Target in Jersey City and walk and around? Walk around. And, like, I mean, because yeah. there was like nothing to do. We're going to go do. to Kmart on yeah. Broadway. <laughs> yes. Right near yes. where you are. And that's our day, because otherwise yeah. I'm going like, to— go look at stuff. Yes, I'm going to go blow my brains out if I yeah. sit at home a yeah. second longer. So. Um, and you know there was, and like there were just way. these days where like we had these two young boys at the time where they were just like, and you know the Nintendo DX or whatever or DS was new at the time, the handheld, and they had, and I'm like, I can't have them play video games all day long, no, right? No, and, my kids with iPads. Yes, we're, like, we're gonna, right. a, you're gonna watch an iPad for it's the electronic leash. Yes, yeah, we, we we give them the iPad for this one so we can bathe the other one. Totally right. Yeah. It's just like sit down and be calm. And it's so, so like, yes, demoralizing yes. modern parenting. But, <laughs> So, you know, Newark is a tough place for little kids. It's, it's, the great, it's the best and worst place for little kids. And then, you know, you move out here, and I don't know if, you know, there was a semi-controversial story about that the New York Times wrote about the L.A. Times and how basically how lame L.A. is. And, you know, all these people like Bill Simmons is outraged on Twitter and people are, you know, think it's like the New York Times, you know, constant theme of L.A.'s a stupid place to live. But, like, it raised, like, it raised some good points that, like, L.A. has—L.A.'s not— you know, as the New York Times argued, not like a real city with a real center. No. Like It's the chicest suburb in the world. Yes. New York is a mountain range where there's an equivalent uh, height to these mountains of all industries. There's right. publishing and banking yes. and politics and, yes. And, and, yes. And, the, yes. and and law enforcement and, and tech and design. And he said the entertainment has its place among those. I go to parties. I'll never forget I'm standing in line at Saranac. At the the famous mansion at uh, Tanglewood, yes. and we're at a fundraiser there for the for, for Tanglewood, with uh, uh, James Taylor and his wife, and we're there, and some Tweedy-looking kind of Moynihan-esque guy turns to me. We're in the buffet line. He says, "And what do you do for a living, young man?" I was like forty <laughs> at the time. And what do you do for a living, young man? He said, and I thought, "I'm in heaven." So oh we're gonna have God. a real conversation over dinner because you don't know who the fuck I am. Yes. And blah blah blah. And 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 in L.A., one mountain dwarfs all the other mountains. Completely. And uh, I find that frustrating. And, and uh, I think one of the things that was really interesting to me here was just how deeply intertwined social and business are here, right? Like, so right. you don't escape, like, any of the same people, you know, which is why— We're friends, aren't we? Yeah. When you work with them. Yes. Um, and whereas, and I think, you know, one of the things I miss about New York, like, you can go— you know, when I was at Michael Wolf's book party two weeks ago in New York, waiting for my car to pick me up in the lobby, the doorman and the porter of the building it was at Michael Wolf's publisher's house, this man named Stephen Rubin. The doorman and the porter, like, knew everything about the book, were trashing Trump, were, like, totally, like, you know, knew the day's news. was t- They were totally on it. And, like, that doesn't happen in L.A. typically, right? In New York, you go to Dunkin' Donuts, that person's on it, right? And, yeah. and in New York, when things are not kosher, they go nuts. And right. here people are like, my congressman is who? Yeah. My state assemblyman is who? Totally. School board politics is all that matters. Yes. Where does my kid go to school? That's yes. the extent of their government. Right. I mean, it's, it is so, everything is so hyper-local here. I mean, it's hyper-local. Hyper-local. Like in, you know, that, do you, do you know that app next door where you can sort of see what, like you just talk to your neighbors within like a two-block radius. And that, like, that to me epitomizes L.A. And it's like that you don't even need to... <laughs> That. Yes, it's it's kind of a thing out here, and you don't even need to talk to anyone beyond your two block radius, and it's it's, it's it American just, West. It, yeah, it, it is it is entirely like it's the conception of the American West. Yes, it's like what's right in front of me? Totally. What do I care about what's going on over there? What right. do I care about? Complete like 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 
the free, manatees. Free will, and it's like it's also like nimbyism. So, the, so, so, so you take the year off. Yeah, and you're so, reacquainted with your family. Yeah, reacquainted. Have another baby. Um, so <laughs> you're reacquainted I, with your husband and have another baby. Yes. And when the time's up, you know, you have a copy of the Hollywood Reporter in your hand and going, man, if I could get my hands on this operation, what well, I would no, do? No, no. We originally were going to move to Marin County. Like I, I sort of ha- like. My husband and I really loved Marin County. We had we had uh, bid on a house, and of course, because it's Marin County, we were immediately outbid. And um, and so then, right around that time, my favorite uh, page six <laughs> had run an item about my apartment being for sale or selling. And so then there was this executive who had been at Condé Nast who was sort of notorious and legendary named Richard Beckman. And so Richard Beckman, had, and he was an ad sales guy, and he had been the publisher of Vogue and Vanity Fair. And and, um, and so he had connected with this um, private money uh, outfit called Guggenheim Partners, and they had acquired this group of sort of sad trade titles and included Billboard, Adweek, and The Hollywood Reporter. The Red and the Green, we used to call it. Oh, how funny. Okay. When, we first came to, when I first came to Hollywood, my friends would say, you got to subscribe to The Red and the Green. Oh, I had, that's so funny. Hollywood Reporter yeah. and Variety. Oh, we how, called them The Red yeah. and the Green. Okay. I'd never heard that. Right. Um, that's great. So the um, And so Richard Beckman's desperately trying to reach me after seeing Page Six. This is like a scene out of Working Girl when she finds out some, you know, something in Page Six and like Chase, when Melanie Griffith's character chases it. And um, it was funny. I have a publicist friend uh, named Allison Broad in New York, and she... I she knows Beckman from just from being in New York. And she said, I'm sure he wants to talk to you about The Hollywood Reporter. I'm like, The Hollywood Reporter, that is such a piece of crap. Like, I've never even looked at that in my life. And um, so I go I go and I meet Beckman at the um, the Bowery Hotel in the restaurant downstairs. And um, people sometimes jokingly call him like Barnum Bailey and Beckman. Like, the show comes to town and he's British and like wild, you know, gesticulation and enthusiasm. But he had this idea. The investors had put him in charge. They made, made him the CEO of this, these titles and said, you know, you can do anything you want, anything. And and um, But he said, I want it to be fabulous. It has to be fabulous. And, you know, and which, you know. Everyone, promise me fabulous. Yeah. I, I, I think he, I, I think he literally may have said, promise me fabulous. And so, and he said, I want it to be glossy, glossy. I want it to be like, you know, I can't remember what he said. Like maybe it's like Vanity Fair meets The Economist, or and this and that, and all his little sex it up. For yes, me. and so I like trying to sell my husband in L.A. was not having it. So for several months we talked about this, and then like, and it was really interesting. Like to me, I just saw immediately what it should be. He gave me these blank books of paper, this glossy paper oversized. And I just sat there and I put post-its on every page. I'm like, this is the, like, you'll have this kind of story, this, 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 this. Okay, like I got it. That's it. I don't need to think about it anymore. And to me, like, I sort of knew, I knew it would succeed, which everybody thinks her thing is going to succeed. But, you know, I, th- I had a very good feeling about it. And, you know, we ended up moving to L.A. And it was this cra- like, we moved here July 10th, 2010. One of the things I know I had to do was hire people with publishing experience from New York, which does not exist in droves in Los Angeles. Mm. And certainly not, you know, not at the time. And hired an art director, creative director, photo director. and Who was your photo director? Um, this woman, Jennifer Lasky. Because you really, really did a great job Gen- with that. Yes. Gen- yes. Jennifer Lasky is a genius. And so this just goes to you made it into a real magazine as far as yes. that goes. So Jennifer Lasky, and this is how, like, you never know what, what someone is really capable of. So Jennifer Lasky was this sort of freelance photo editor out of New York, and Us Weekly used to do these really, like, hokey things that, you know, were going to be the last gasp to save publishing called bookazines, where you publish, you create, like, little fan things for twelve ninety five and you sell them in the grocery. So she was the photo editor of the ones for Twilight. And so she would like sit there and look for pictures of Rob Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. And but I remember her taste. I was like, wow, like she was finding like the coolest photos of Rob Pattinson and she had great taste. And so we had a prototype done by, let's say, August 
13th. It was right right around my birthday. And um, so we took it out to show studios, and they're all, you know, you'll never be able to pull this off. Like, all this media that covers Hollywood is doomed. It's like, but, you know, anyway, what I'm saying is there was a ton of skepticism and also a ton of skepticism about can Us Weekly Lady come and do this very different thing? And, you know, I think um, if people who are here remember, The Hollywood Reporter was not just failing. It was like— Flatline. I mean, like already underground and sort of—it had a sadness all around it. So it's, it was definitely like bad news bearers. Like you have this staff who has been misdirected or not directed right. for years. They're and, losing, but it's not necessarily their fault. Right. And so like they—there's like an inertia that's set in where they don't know— like they don't know what's good from bad because nobody tells them. They don't care. They're burnt out. They need leadership. Yes. And so, like, I kept the staff, like all these people. But I'm sure you'll remember this era of Hollywood where, like, like the so-called trade press is so beholden to the studios. Premier magazine. Yes. And it just becomes <clears throat> press release central, right? And like, you're, Well, I mean, in my own case, I do a movie with my ex-wife. We do this movie, The Marrying Man. Yeah. And, the, and the Susan Lyon is the head of Premier mm-hmm. magazine. And you realize that the PR department of the studios are just faxing her the articles yes. of what to write. Yeah. Most of what happened that was painted as misbehaving stars on the set of a movie, right. much of it was people having honest, creative differences. When yes. you walk in, what really distinguishes the Hollywood Reporter under your tutelage and when you were there under your leadership is you go to that level where you become a real yes. honest magazine. Yes. You're not like, like, like premier magazine was a shitty magazine. Uh-huh. If someone called me up and they said to me, and I was like a child, I was right. in my, I was in my career infancy when someone said to me, what do you think that premier magazine is going to do? They're going to take your word for it, you and this woman who you're dating, yes. or they're going to do the bidding of the studio that releases 30 movies a year. And advertises. Of course you're going to get crushed. Where does the spine of it becoming a really, really smart magazine come from. It is so fascinating to me, and I think you see this in so much political coverage, the way they would self-censor themselves, like people come in, they come, they go interview someone and they say, oh my God, like you wouldn't believe this crazy thing someone said. And then you get the story and it's not in there. And I remember this happened several times and I would say to the person like, why is that not in there? Why are you protecting them? Well, I just don't think they would like it. I'm like, who cares? Like, why do you care? Like, they said it. Like, and they said it probably because they want you to use it, right? And, and not, not like, not like crazy gotcha stuff, but right. like Hollywood had gotten into the heads of these reporters where they were protecting them, but not even supporting them or financially supporting the publication or whatever. And, um, and you know, I also remember this one time, like, like. You know, I was the new editor, and there was this one reporter there, and, and I'm sure you must remember when Nikki Fink was here. Sure. And, you know, and so Nikki Fink is is trying to reach this reporter at the office, um, no doubt to try to report something terrible about us. And so he's trying to reach this reporter, and the reporter, we're in a news meeting, the reporter's like, oh, my God, Nikki's calling, I have to run out. I'm like, why are you, like, giving power to someone like that? Right. Like, what is wrong with you? Right. And so they were all kind of, like, it was like a collective self-esteem problem. Who's the executive at Warner Brothers who greenlit bringing TMZ right. to TV? Do you know what it's like to walk down the corridors of Warner Brothers, and we go to go down one hallway, yep. and there's all the people producing films and television that I might be in, and you go down that hallway, and there's Harvey Levin, who they're making money off of, yes. who's out there trying to kill me. Right. Was it Peter Roth? I mean, who brought TMZ right. to Warner Brothers? I'm going, like, Shame on you. Why did you do that? And why are you? Because well, right. what they realized was here's Hedda Hopper. 
Here's Army Archard. Here's Walter Winchell. Here's Luella Parsons, the old dinosaurs. Yeah. And, 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 and Rona Barrett when right. I was a little boy you right. know, on, on TV. And the studios would, would work really, really hard to control and manage their uh, stories about uh, out-of-wedlock babies and, 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 and interracial marriages and abortions and yeah. alcoholism and sanitariums. I'm using all the language yes. of that period. Right. And their drug addiction and their this and their DUIs yeah. and, their, and their divorces and their spousal abuse. And they, they, they would try to bury all that. And then one day some guy wakes up and goes, goes, why are we breaking our ass trying to protect these people? Let's make money off of right. the fornicating, puerile right. idiocy of the stars. Right. Why are we protecting the stars? Let's just lay it out there. Janice Min started her career as a crime reporter for the local paper in Westchester County. On the same beat at the same time in Baltimore was screenwriting phenom David Simon. Then in 1993, both found their calling. Men at People, Simon at the TV show based on his book, Homicide. They offered me the chance to write the pilot. And I said, maybe wisely, maybe not. Wisely because I didn't know what the hell I would have been doing. I said, get somebody who knows what they're doing to do this. I'm, an, I'm a newspaperman. But maybe unwisely when I saw uh, the per-episode royalty that yeah. went to that guy. Sure. Yeah. You know? Eventually, Simon agreed, and the rest is TV history. Hear the rest of that interview at heresthething.org. Coming up, Janice Min and I discuss Me Too and Woody Allen. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. For nearly 25 years, Janice Min has been at the white-hot center of celebrity journalism, covering stars and the business of selling them. So she's seen the sexism and discrimination in show business up close, edited dozens of articles about it, and Janice Min worries that the Harvey Weinstein moment is being squandered. Her concern is this that powerful men who could be pushed to solve structural problems are getting a free pass because of the focus on individual sexual harassers. I'm afraid of revolution without a successful outcome, right? Mm. And this is the thing that I find frustrating about Time's Up and Me Too and all this stuff. This culture of victimology among women, right? That like women have no agency. They have no ability to control these situations or get out of them. And I understand there's a power imbalance and you felt indebted. Walk out the door. Mm -hmm. And like there's certain things where you're reading them. And some of it's generational, I think. But the Aziz Ansari thing, I'm reading and I'm like, okay, where's the bad part? Where's the bad part? I'm like, what? Like that's, it's done. And like, I like, and, and. Let's focus less on Aziz Ansari and I don't want you to ignore that because yes. men need to learn how and, – and, and I say this to my daughter who's 22. I say that remember when she was like 15, I remember sitting to her down and I said to her, remember I said, it's not only that men will say anything to get you to do what they want because right. men will say anything. Yes to get you to do that. Right. I said, some of them are very good at it. Right. Like, from a very young age, how do you teach girls to not feel disempowered in these relationships they have when they go into work and, and with boys and with men and people at a higher level, men? They've been, you know, painfully silent on these issues. And it's sort of women losing it over this stuff and scaring men to death. And so how, but it's, but how do you actually move this conversation to something productive where you actually create a path for better gender representation and positions of power? And, and making, making a very striking kind of bold move that's going to have some resonance, for example. I mean, I'm off, this is just off the top of my head. The famous movie star is on the set of the film and she says, I'm not going to come to work tomorrow right. until you have the head of the studio come down here and have lunch with me. I'm going right. to shut down the film tomorrow. Right. Have Bob so-and-so come down. What are you guys going to do? I don't feel comfortable working for your company. Yes. You had Ratner here. You, right. had, Brad, you had Brad Pack or whatever. Tell me what you're going to do. What are you actively doing to make me feel well, more that, comfortable I mean, and really get the people who have the juice? Yes. Who's in charge? Right. What are we doing? You, you can you can get all the Aziz and Saris you want. When do we get the people that are in charge of the networks and the studios right. to pump right. up? And, and you know, you saw Gal Wonder Woman. She you know she did that right. She said Brett Ratner couldn't be a part of Wonder Woman two or whatever, and she she got him off the film. But I think fundamentally there's such a power structure, here, and you see this in the pay inequity stuff that is becoming sort of an all consuming topic here. Like, but it, all of it's sort of tied into the same thing about who has power and who has the ability to exploit that power. And it is 99% a male-female thing, but it also is the sort of culture of the town. But the real thing is there's something uncomfortably pornographic about the kind of endless outing of the sexual... It's very masturbatory. You get out men till the end of time, like, 
You could do it every day. You could have a news channel devoted to this. Um, <laughs> we should start that. We could yeah. the <laughs> But the Hollywood thing is particularly frustrating to me. And, you know, um, Amanda has in the New York Times wrote a scathing story about the Time's Up movement the other day about how it's all just activism and not action, right? Basically taking the, the, the actual hard questions about Hollywood and power and abuse and turning it into a fashion moment. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, not, it's not really going to get us anywhere. I really want to see somebody. I keep saying you've got to convict Harvey. Right. If Harvey's a guy who got Mossad agents yes. trying to bury all the people right. who he raped, let's get him in jail. Right. My mistake has been that I thought that certain things went without saying. If Woody Allen is guilty of what they claim he is guilty of, you don't think I want him punished for right. that in whatever way? But put yourself in this position, which is it's the sentencing phase of a horrible crime. Right. And his mother is sitting there in the front row yeah, yeah. for him in the corner. Yeah. It's her son. Yeah. They're my friends. Right. My impulse is to help them right. and to understand them and to support them. If men that I know, Jimmy Toback is yep. one, if men that I know are, are guilty of some crime, I don't right. want them to skate on that. Because I'm an actor, we're trained to think about alternatives. What yes. might have happened? What yes. might you have done to avoid right. this? And when I see men by their own hand destroy their lives and ruin the lives of their wives and their children, I mean, their name is shit for the rest yeah. of them. I find that very disturbing and very, very painful. But Harvey Weinstein, he's the low-hanging fruit. Yes. And you've got to prosecute him and you've got to convict him so right. that everybody understands there's real consequences. Just talking about it in the press right. and talking about it on Twitter yes. and, 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 and retweeting articles from Ronan this and yes. this one and that one and all the people who are supportive of it. I said, that's not going to get it done. You need to have a trial. But the Woody thing is so complicated. You know, it, he's his worst character witness, right? All the circumstantial evidence around Woody is like, you know, is never going to prove to you and people who don't believe he sexually assaulted his daughter that he did it. And and um, but I, it, we, doesn't it, do, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. All those movies don't help. They <laughs> do not help. And so there, I think there are people who think on that fact alone, he should go away. He needs to, you know, never work again because he made movies that today could be viewed as incredibly— Creeping people out. Yeah, totally creepy. One of our really fine reporters, Stephen Galloway, had interviewed Woody Allen for the cover of The Hollywood Reporter that sort of set all of this off. And Woody said creepy things in the story, like including in the way he talked about his wife, Sunyi, which was—you would describe it as sort of highly narcissistic in how Sunyi kind of serves him. Like a geisha. Yes, Totally. And so then, you know, Ronan Farrow had put something on Twitter, which I saw, and he said, I love Janice Min, but what what the hell was she thinking? And because Ronan didn't feel like Stephen had pushed Woody hard enough on this alleged sexual assault of his sister. And like we say to Ronan, okay, write something about it then if you want. And, you know, he wrote this very well-argued, well-written essay about how Hollywood has skated over the Woody Allen issue and, and does not believe, and which is so funny to think about now, but does not believe accusers. And you could see the winds of change coming. That story took off huge. And it was just came this enormous thing. Led that, to the New Yorker piece. Yes. Let me, let me ask you this, though, because we're going to run out of time. At one point, I was supposed to go to Columbia School of Journalism. I was going to do a program with you. Yes. And you couldn't make it. Correct. It was going to be on the panel. It was you, me, and Nick Denton. Oh, my God. And I was That's told right. that your schedule changed yes. and you couldn't come. And when you dropped out, I dropped out because I said, I'm not going to go with I mean, you. I was not a fan of Denton's right. and that operation. When they went bankrupt and that whole thing happened with Hulk Hogan, what did you think about that? God, you know, okay, so the, obviously there was so much schadenfreude in the ether about that, right? And then you're like, oh, Peter Thiel's bankrolling this. And, you know, and then yeah. you're like Charles Harder and it starts to get like, then you start to feel sort of icky about it. And then you come around to like, and so Nick Denton and I always have gotten along. And for whatever reason, they never went after these the terrible things about me, but they never went after me as one of their 
characters that mm-hmm. they like to torture. And so um, I think people feel kind of wistful about some of their stuff now because mm-hmm. sometimes, like, whatever moment we're in with this Trump moment, like, one of the things that I find refreshing is, like, people will just say anything now and do anything, right? Like, any sort of polite veneer on the truth, you can just blow it away, right? And I think that was one of the things Gawker did. And so you see some of what they reported on, like Louis C.K., right? There, I saw a lot of references to that when the Louis C.K. stuff Taking came out. Taking Taro, yeah, going and, after him. Yes, now. and Gawker was the first to sort of get into that story. And so like a really good Gawker writer could write about the absurdity of all of it, right? And so I missed that. But, you know, it's scary. It's had a very severe chilling effect where you believe a journalistic organization, a single attorney can bankrupt you, you know, well, I think these decisions that were probably treated much more cavalierly, and that's the wrong word, but much more boldly in an operation, you're made to scrutinize them much more. And, you know, there was, um, uh, and this under this threat of like a Charles Harder or one of these attorneys, and, you know, Charles Harder, as you saw with Harvey Weinstein, and he did it with one of our journalists, the Hollywood Reporter, Kim Masters, they create this whole strategy, and they did it with Lisa Bloom, where you no longer, you no longer undermine the story which you can't, sometimes can't dispute, you undermine the, the journalist. And, mm. you know, with um, with Kim Masters, she was reporting on Roy Price at Amazon, his whole sexual harassment of a showrunner who was involved with the man in the high castle. Mm-hmm. And um, and they created this fake story that they said to Matt Bellany, who was the editor who took over for me, um, that Kim Masters had been, um, well, you know, she was soliciting money from Roy for her show on KCRW. She has a show on KCRW called The Business about Hollywood. And, you know, when he said no, that's when she decided to go after him. So then you can set up this whole malicious intent argument that can get in people's heads. And so Kim, Kim, who would, like, never, she is, like, the most straight arrow journalist of all time. So Kim has... Could they prove that, that she solicited him for money? No. So, so, you know, they said it's in an email. And so they go through this, like, weeks of stuff where then finally, you know, the Hollywood Reporter's attorneys and Matt have to say, like, give us the email. Oh, well, we'll, let's, we'll get it to you. We'll get it to you. Of course it doesn't exist. And, but by that time, they've seeded all this sort of doubt. They've accomplished their goal. Yes. And, and it's one of these things where, um, I mean, it's sort of what Roger Ailes did with Gabe Sherman, being able to sort of say the person has an agenda. You know, it'll all come out in court how this person has had it out for me, us. And, you know, a lot of newsrooms. And Kim had a terrible time. She shopped that story at multiple other outlets. People were scared. Like, well, oh, that, you know, if the Hollywood Reporter didn't run it, there must be something wrong. Like, why would we run it? And had to go from place to place to place. And finally, this outlet that's a, you know, a very um, well-regarded upstart called The Information that comes out of Silicon Valley, it is self-funded by, a, by this woman who has family money on her own. She was the one who ran it. And when someone else did it, validated it, they weren't sued, then it became a story to cover. And that is just one example of a story mm-hmm. I know. So you can see how, you know, a thousand other stories probably every week get ground into nothingness. You're this ragingly smart woman, uh, and you should make movies and TV because we need smart women in movies huh, and TV. Oh, God. I, television, maybe not movies. Movies are such a long process. Call me. Oh, we'll my just God. have lunch and talk a- about absolutely. it. Absolutely. We're on. Thank you so much for doing Thank this. you for really having me. Really very grateful. That was Janice Min, the visionary turnaround artist behind Us Weekly and The Hollywood Reporter. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.